Well, you ready? Everybody ready? We are gonna have some fun over the next couple weeks, more than a couple weeks, it's gonna be a couple months, as we walk through the book of Song of Songs. And so I'm particularly excited about this. Just wanna let you know right off the top that we're gonna kinda put a PG-13 warning out, a little bit of a disclaimer, okay? So if you have like older elementary children or uh, maybe junior high students, we want you to know that we're gonna be talking about some very real things over the next bunch of weeks, a part of this teaching series, and as we look at this book. And so we just wanna throw it out there, use that at your own discretion. There may be things, if your children are with you, that we're talking about, where you may need to do some further teaching, <laughs> and we'll just leave that up to you. So uh, just, just a reminder of that, and we just wanna put that out there for everybody, just that disclaimer. It's so funny, the first time my grandparents um, visited City View back in the day, about eight or nine years ago, it was like one of our first talks on sex. And they didn't warn me that they were coming. They just showed up with my parents, which was awesome. Our first teaching on sex at Praxis Church, or at City View at the time. And uh, it was just so funny kind of at lunch, kind of trying to describe to them that this is not something we talk about every week. And yet it's so, so important. So what I want you to do right now, if you have a Bible, which you probably do on a device somewhere, or maybe have a paper copy right in front of you, would you open up with me to the Old Testament book, the poetic wisdom book of Song of Songs. Song of Songs. Flip there with me if you can. Now it was in 2002 that a guy named Eugene Peterson translated a version of the Bible that was out for people to consume called The Message. And I know many of you guys have probably read the message translation of the scriptures. And Eugene has been a huge uh, influence in my life over the years. He passed away a few years ago. And he was really a, a linguistic guy. He was fluent in Hebrew and Greek. And what he would do for his church, and there is no expectation for us with this at Praxis, but every week he would take the text that they were wrestling through as a church and he would translate it from Hebrew or Greek into modern English. And over the years, he compiled this thing called The Message. It's a kind of a, a remix or a translation of the scriptures. Uh, maybe some of you still use that today. It's very poetic and really distilled down kind of into plain language for us in the 21st century. But it's so funny, in 2002, I was sitting in church, bored like many of you are probably sitting today, except when we were bored in church in 2002, we had to like skim through a Bible. There was no phones, there was like no Pokemon Go or Candy Crush or whatever you're doing right now. But I remember sitting in church and flipping through and I had just been given this translation of the Bible, the message version, and I flipped to this book in the Old Testament that I had never really read before. I mean, I did the Bible in the year thing. I read, I guess I had read it. I read it kind of quickly, but I never actually really slowed down to read it well. And so here I am sitting in church. I open up my Bible and I read this, the message version, Song of Songs 1. It starts by saying this. There's a lady that says this, and I feel like, honestly, it should have been like uh, British actors' accents in the background or Shakespeare or something, you know, like the sexy accents, because it said this. Kiss me full on the mouth. I'm not even going to try a British accent, okay? Kiss me full on the mouth. What? Yes, for your love is better than wine, headier than your aromatic oils. The syllables of your mouth murmur like a meadow brook. No wonder everyone loves to say your name. 
Take me away with you, she says. Let's run off together. An elopement with my king lover. We'll celebrate. We'll sing. We'll make great music. I think in quotes there, great music, right? Yes, for your love is better than vintage wine. Everyone loves you, of course, and why not? (laughs) What? This is in the Bible. So then I flip a few chapters over and the man responds back to the woman. You're so beautiful, my darling, so beautiful, and your dove eyes are veiled. I'm just like, I should be writing some of this down right now just for like sweet talk for Heather. He goes on, by your hair as it flows and it shimmers like a flock of goats in the distance streaming down a hillside in the sunshine, your smile is generous and full, expressive and strong, and your smile is clean. I probably probably thinking ancient Mediterranean here, not exactly Colgate toothpaste and toothbrushes, right? He's like, your, your, your smile is strong and clean. Your lips are jewel red. Your mouth elegant and inviting. Your veiled cheeks soft and radiant. The smooth, lithe lines of your neck command notice. All heads turn in awe and admiration. Then he goes on. Your breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle grazing among the first spring flowers. What am I reading? He goes on. The sweet, fragrant curves of your body, the soft, spiced contours of your flesh invite me. And I come. I stay until dawn breathes. It's light and night slips away. You're beautiful from head to toe, my dear love. Beautiful beyond compare absolutely flawless. Let's just pray and go home, right? So here I am as like a 19-year-old kid sitting in church board reading this and I am like, what do we have here? Anybody with me? Like what? That's I think a good question. What do we have here? The plan for the next bunch of weeks is to actually really look at this question. What is going on here? What what do we have in the Hebrew Bible with this particular book? And the, the goal is over the next little while is to actually walk through the Song of Songs. Now, the Song of Songs is uh, th- that even that term, Song of Songs, which the letter actually, somebody expresses that this is the Song of Songs, one of the writers, is actually a Hebrew idiom. It's like saying the Holy of Holies or the King of Kings. In other words, what it's saying is that this is the greatest thing. Really what it's saying is that this is the greatest song of all songs. And yet, most of us in our Bible reading plan kind of read through it quickly. And for the church in in, in its moment, oftentimes we just kind of read it over. It's hard to maybe understand at points. And we just kind of skip it by. There's very little emphasis on this particular book. What's interesting is that there's actually more commentaries written by Christian academics in the past, more commentaries written on Song of Songs than there is Romans and Galatians combined. You know, we think of Romans as kind of the weighty theological letter or Galatians and all the emphasis is put on that. There's actually more, there's little emphasis a lot of the times on this in the church and yet there's more commentaries that have been written on this. It is the Song of Songs. 
And that puts into perspective for us a little bit, bit that this is actually in the canon of scripture for a reason. That the Bible, even the, the, even the Bible that we have in our hands, that we scroll through, we read through, we engage week in and week out, it's actually put together with intention. And this song, the song above all songs, is actually in there for a reason. So the plan is this. The plan is today, we're not going to necessarily read more than what I just read there. And you're like, thank you. That, I was getting a little hot. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to kind of prep the ground and kind of till the ground to get a little bit of an introduction going for our time together. If you know, I was thinking back over the last 10 years, whether at City View or Praxis, we have gone through, these are the books that we've gone through or letters. We've gone through Exodus, Luke, Acts, 1 Thessalonians, Jonah, 1 John. We've gone through Mark, the passion narrative we went in depth through in the, the Gospel of John. We went through Revelation a few years ago. We went through the Sermon on the Mount twice in the course of our church's history. And a couple years ago, we went through Ephesians. So you've been around. We've done some work over the years, which is beautiful. But one of the things you know is when we kind of prep something and introduce something, we need to take some time and kind of look at the background and engage actually what we're reading. What today is going to be is it's going to be another exercise for us in how to read the Bible really well. Because most of us that are here today, we put our lives on this. We think that this thing, the Bible that we have in our hands or on our phone, is authority and it leads our lives. But sometimes we need to do exercises in how we actually really read it well. And I often think, you know, more than just, you're going to change the world. You know, those type of messages, those inspirational messages. You're a world changer. You're going to change the world. And sometimes that's necessary and inspiration is not a bad thing. But I think some, a lot of the times we just need to slow down and learn to read and interpret the scriptures and actually look at what this means for us in a world that has all sorts of things to say otherwise. And so that's what the plan is today. So the question is, what do we have here? Like what, what did I just read there? You know, the, the message translation obviously is kind of a more modern translation, but even if you're to read it in the NIV or whatever you're to read it in, what do we have here? There's been tension, and what we're going to do is take a couple minutes. Bear with me. I promise there's payoff in the end. What we're going to do is just take a little look at actually the history of the church. Because there has been some divide over the years, and there's actually been a dominant way in which both the Jewish tradition and the church basically adopted as well, a particular kind of way that they've read the Song of Songs. You know, one of the tensions has been over the years is this allegory, or is this like what it seems like it is when you read it at first hand? Or is this erotic love poetry? Is this sexual or is this spiritual? Really, that's the question we're kind of looking at. And there's over the years been, I think, a little bit of a conflict of interpretation. You all know that we have the Bible in our hands and we pick it up and we read it. And it takes interpretation. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. The particular book we're going to be looking at, Song of Songs, over the next bunch of weeks was written in Hebrew. And so we wrestle through the context and the language of it. We know a couple things, though. One, in Jewish tradition, the Jewish community typically read the Song of Songs as allegory. They viewed it like this. The man in the t text here and in the poetry is God. The woman is Israel. And really, everything that we read, even the really sexual stuff that we read right here, is about the covenant between God and Israel. 
And so this is actually the frame in which they kind of pass this on. A lot of academics, but really right down to kind of the plain Jewish reading of this was over and over that it pointed towards an allegory. Now listen, is there a story unfolding in the Old Testament between God and his people? Absolutely. But it, I think it bred a little bit of context for them that made this more about being spiritual than actually the context of love poetry. One commentator has noted that with the Orthodox Jewish community, we find that the old tradition, the, find that the old tradition was that men under the age of 30 years old ought not to be read the Song of Songs. And so there was all sorts of external things in the Jewish community. Like you can only, like they would really push, you should not be new to this and read the Song of Songs because of what's going on in here. And not only that, this one commentator said, you should, you should be almost like 30 years old. It's like me with my kids and dating. Like 30 is like the age. You with me? Any parents out there? You're just going to keep, all right, you with me? Some of you are like, really? No, I promise that's not the case. But, you know, this was weighty for the community. And what you see in the Jewish community is what spawned on was that over the next 1700 year, years, basically till the mid-19th century, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, most Jewish interpreters approach the Song of Songs as allegory. It's spiritual. It's not sexual. It's not love poetry. What it is, is this poetry that we have in our culture, but the primary way in which we're going to read it is we're going to read it between God's relationship with Israel. Okay. I mean, that's an option. I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad. But what happened is, is the Christian tradition adopted this type of interpretation. By far, over the last 19, if you look at the last 2,000 years, but specifically from the first century to the 19th century, the most common reading of this text has been to desexualize it by seeing it as an allegory of Christ and the church. So the Jewish community had God, Yahweh, and Israel as their framework of allegory. Well, it was passed on and Christian interpreters right from the first century and through the church mothers and fathers, most of them looked at the Song of Songs as Jesus and the church. And rightfully so at times, right? Paul talks about this relationship of marriage really being a picture of Jesus in the church. And so interpreters would often kind of point to the reality that the Song of Songs is really telling a story about Jesus and the church. So much so, if you read in Song of Songs 1, you can read it right now. You probably have it open in front of you. In verse 13, the, the, the gal says, My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh, lodging between my breasts. That's what she says. Now, some of you are like, whoa, you're for the first time you're like, I'm listening in church. You've got me, right? For early Christian interpreters, they took this little verse and they looked at it like this. It's taken to reference Jesus as the sachet or the sachet of myrrh, which spans the Old Testament and the New Testaments and symbolically represents the woman's breasts. So you're picking up, they saw this as allegory. They saw this as a moment to interpret it in a particular way where it was about Jesus and the church. And really what Jesus does is he bridges the old covenant and the new, I got to watch my hands here. We got to, uh, you know, bridging the Old Testament and the New Testament and all that's going on. And this is the way they looked at it. They looked at it as though it was allegory. So, so crazy. Such an interesting way to look at something that you read at first hand. You're like, what is going on? This is the way the church have embraced it. And so little snapshots for us to show us that you have the Jewish tradition that's passed on to the Christian tradition, and they are taking this more as allegory than anything. Then you get to, the first, again, the first century church and beyond was very much shaped by this guy named Plato. 
If you know Plato, Greek philosopher, Platonic thought was very dualistic and did not see people as unified wholes. Um, one of Plato's big things is that the body was a prison house to the soul, that the soul was good, but that the material body was bad. And for Plato, since sexuality was kind of formed by passionate and physical desires and all that's going on, he ultimately separated these things and Christians began to steep themselves in this thought and began to teach that passion and sexuality were inherently sinful. And this was actually passed on through church history, through the church fathers and the church mothers. Let me give you a little example, okay? Hopefully you're still with me. Clement of Alexandria said that intercourse performed licitly is an occasion of sin unless done purely to beget children. So the idea was you have sex to have kids. Tertullian, Nother, and Ambrose, two great church fathers, were said to prefer extinction of the human race to continued sexual intercourse. Origen, one of the best, was so, if many of you know Origen's story, he was so convinced of the evils of sexual pleasure that he took a knife and, many of you know the story, he actually castrated himself. Took care of that, right? Gregory of Nicaea taught that Adam and Eve were created without sexual desire, and if they fall, and if the fall, sorry, had not occurred, the race would have, the human race would have reproduced itself by some harmless mode of vegetation. On and on to Jerome. Some of you know the church father Jerome, 347 to 420 AD. One of the things that he did is he threw himself into thorny brambles to overwhelm himself with pain when he began to desire a woman sexually. He also beat his chest with a stone to punish himself for feeling sexually tempted. And so he tried all these different methods to deal with his sexual desire. One thing that says is that the thorn bushes wore off. And one of the things he tried to distract himself by is by learning Hebrew, which if you've ever learned Hebrew, that's just laugh out loud stuff. He believed that a husband was guilty of adultery if he engaged in unrestrained sexual passion with his wife. This is a church father. This is something that he talked to. Like, these are the, the viewpoints of some of the church fathers specifically. Augustine or Augustine, the great Augustine, however you want to say it, was sexually active before his conversion and later decided that sex within marriage was not sinful, though the lust and passion associated with sex was sinful. Because of this, he often commanded married couples to not engage in sex and referred to it as a form of animalistic lust. One of the greats, Augustine. This is what he thought. Onward to St. Francis, who made woman out of snow and then caressed them in order to quiet his lust that burned in him. One of the great church fathers, again, throughout history as doing this. Thomas Aquinas taught that sex was only permissible for purposes of procreation. Aquinas was a kind of a guy who thought that sex was duty alone. Anything beyond that was immortal. Onward to the Catholic Church's view through the Middle Ages was that sexual love both in and out of marriage was evil. By the 5th century, priests, obviously, if you know the story, were forbidden to marry. To Pope Gregory the Great, who wrote that although marriage was not sinful, conjugal union cannot take place without carnal pleasure, he said, and such pleasure cannot under any circumstance be without blame. And so this spurred on the church to eventually begin, if you can believe it, imagine this, think about this, the church 
used the authority to begin to limit the days on which sex was permissible in marriage and continued adding days until half of the year or more was prohibited. Imagine the church having that kind of, just crazy to me. Imagine the church having that kind of authority. By the way, we're going to have a church meeting on Wednesday night. We're just going to let you all know what you can and cannot do, right? So this, I mean, in church history, it's just this continual adoption of interesting, very interesting, interesting views on sex and sexuality to the point where in 2011, a pastoral letter on chastity from the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops for married couples said this, the value of sexual intercourse does not lie in recreation or physical gratification. That is why the sexual act has to be unitive and procreative and why some kinds of sexual activity are not chaste. Though pleasure may be present, some acts are a misuse of sex when they fall short of what God intends. And so all of this, I hope you're hanging with me, all of this kind of shows us that how we interpret things and what is passed on through tradition has massive implications for how we live. At least nod your head with me on that one, right? Like the way people interpreted this and then passed it along has huge implications over the last number of years in how the church has viewed sexuality. In other words, I just put it like this, and we say this all the time, our theology matters. And for 1,800 years, this was the dominant view, that the Song of Songs, this poetry that we get in the Old Testament, is simply allegory. The Jewish tradition shied away from a more literal interpretation in it, and this was passed on to the church. And I know, listen, I know when we talk about this stuff, there can be all sorts of pain. I, I, I realize when we talk about these things, some of you have grown up in the church and had really poor experiences. We will, over the next bunch of weeks, talk about purity culture and some of the damage that that has done at times. And some of us are recovering from, from some of this. I'm very, very aware. And some of the joking and the lightness around this, I'm very, and we are very aware that there's brokenness in this area. But it's just interesting that this was the posture. But then you get to the... 18th century, 19th century. You know, we talk about the Enlightenment a lot, and sometimes we talk about the Enlightenment in a negative way because we look at what modernity has done, and there there are some things I think that modernity has done, at least for the Christian faith, that have kind of gone against it. This idea that everything can be put under a microscope or that somehow we've got to apologetically, everything's always got to make sense. We've had science the last couple hundred years. but And so that has created, I think, some things that, are hard because now everything has to be proven under a microscope. At the other side of things, though, is through this rational way of thinking, we've learned some things about the Song of Songs over the last 100 to 200 years that have really helped bring it back to its context. You know, there's been archaeology, uh, archaeological discovery among much of Israel's neighbors from that time back in the ancient Near East, neighbors like Egypt and Babylon, and all sorts of things, all, all sorts of things have kind of turned up. And one of the things that's turned up is that there are other pieces of ancient love poetry from the surrounding nations and within Israel's own moment that are very similar in language to the Song of Songs. Make sense? Basically, archaeologically, they found other erotic love poetry and other love poetry from way back that we now see very much syncs up with the Song 
of songs. And one of the things that scholars have seen over the last couple hundred years is though that this, though this letter or this book, sorry, this book of Song of Songs has been very much read as an allegory, one of the things that people have begun to see, credible, great scholars have begun to see, is that love poetry was actually a meaningful part of Israel's culture and their art. You know, Tremper Longman, uh, great guy. I've really leaned into his commentary for this particular work. And I, I really, if you, if you want somebody who's like an expert in the Song of Songs, read his work. We'll put some recommended reading out there. He says this, that Song of Songs leads us in a new understanding of sensual holiness as long as we are not sidetracked by its 2,000-year history of Christian neoplatonic de-eroticization. Basically, what he's saying is, there's new understanding around some of the archaeology to show us love poetry was a thing. And so the posture that we're actually going to take over the next bunch of weeks is one, and I don't say this arrogantly, but I think from what we see is actually the right one. That this doesn't have to be as much spiritual or allegorical as it is love poetry. One of the things I want us to do, and I hope we can do, is that we stop domesticating and over-spiritualizing the Bible. One of the things that has brought me back to just the beauty of the Bible is that it's raw and it's real, and we have something like Song of Songs in there because it's dealing with real things in real life, and yes, it's poetry, and yes, it's wisdom literature, and it's a collection of ancient poetry, but one of the things I want us to see and one of the things that's drawn me back to the scriptures is the beauty that this is actually what it is. Love poetry. We don't have to over-spiritualize it. Certainly, I guess we could look at it as though God working with the church, but more than ever, it is a man and a woman and we're going to learn through the themes and some of the things we're going to see over the next bunch of weeks that it is a young woman who delights in this man and they're engaged and they can't wait. And there's, I mean, we read some of it here and I know I was kind of joking, but there's an intense desire. There's this seeking and this finding and the joy of this couple being physically attracted to each other. And one of the pictures we actually see here is that sexual desire is actually a gift. It's a gift from God. It's not just a story between God and his people, but there's actually this rhythm and flow within this couple where they're attracted to each other, where there's desire, and this is a great, sexually they desire each other, and this is a great gift from God. We'll get into it over the next bunch of weeks as well. There's all sorts all over the place, signposts of garden imagery. You know, we get an image, and what do you think that garden imagery is when, when you read in the Song of Songs? Any good Bible reader is going to look back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden over and over is going to resonate in the background for us. A world, a place where there's shalom and peace, untainted by sin and sexual sin, a place of, of just wholeness and unity. The, the Hebrew word we get here between man and wife is akkad, this, this one fleshness that not just their bodies, but their entire lives are drawn together, that that's actually the power of six, sex. And we're going to get, I think, over the next bunch of weeks, a glimpse of what human, well, a glimpse of what human sexuality can be. Yes, it's broken. Yes, there are all sorts of things at play in our own culture that taint this. But we'll get the beauty of sexuality in God's kingdom. So the continual call for me is just to stop domesticating the Bible. If you guys are with us in our Hebrew Bible course earlier last year, we just 
this kept coming back to this, that this is real stuff with real authors in real places, and Song of Songs is no different. The reality is, is that God loves sex, and that this is his idea, that God loves this, and it's here for a reason. This is his idea. I was thinking, think about it. Human reproduction, right, doesn't happen by two people, like, this doesn't happen. Human reproduction doesn't happen by two people giving each other a pinky swear or playing rock, paper, scissors, right? If only it was that easy. Or simultaneously patting your head and rubbing your stomach at the same time. This is not how it happens. It's sex. This is God's idea. From pleasure and intimacy to orgasm, this is God's idea. And amongst all this, I also know And we are also not benign to the pain here. Even as we talk openly about this, I know, we know that there's pain. There's no other area, and we often say this, in broken humanity that possesses pain and brokenness like this one right here. We know that. I mean, just look across the landscape of our culture. uh, Objectification and abuse run rampant in, in our culture. And here's the thing, you and I, we all do this. We take God's good gifts and we screw them up as humans. We do this. All I want to say today is this, as we kind of get the ball rolling and as we look at at this, is that this literature is here in the Hebrew scripture for a reason. It is here in our Bibles for a reason. And again, I think it says a lot about the Bible and what it is. And I also think it says a lot about God and his character and his nature. God created sex in all of its goodness. And we live in a moment where the world postures itself where sex is everything. Just look at our shows, our songs, our film. One of the things through COVID is I've actually, and this is not virtuous, I just watch a lot of sports, but I've watched more TV in the last year than I ever have. And it's just very, and this is not like a judgment thing to the culture. It's just true that it seems like every show or every story, the driving point is sex and sexuality. So the world, to the world, sex is everything. But as we've seen to the church, oftentimes it's kind of been pushed into a dark corner or under the rug and sex has become nothing. And yet I think this is actually something and this is why we get the Song of Songs. That sexual desire can and and is a, a good thing. And we see this on display between this couple in this book. Hope you're hanging with me. Now, you've probably heard if you've been to a wedding that we've done, we've had a bunch of great weddings over the years at Praxis. Um, I've often shared this, that in a Jewish wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom, what would happen in an Orthodox Jewish wedding ceremony is the bride and groom would stand under a canopy. Basically, it was a sheet that would cover only them and it had four sticks on it and they would stand under it and it's called an upa. Maybe you've been to a wedding or a ceremony where the couple stands under the upa. And standing under the upa in the Jewish tradition had its roots in the Exodus, If you remember, God says to Israel, I have heard the cry of my people. You know, God sends Moses to rescue them. And it's through Moses that God makes promises to the people of Israel. He says things like, I will take you out and I will rescue you. I will redeem you. And if you read it, if you actually lean in and read what's happening here, these are actually promises that a bride and groom make to each other on their wedding. In the story of the Exodus, it anticipates the coming marriage between God and his people. And even in the wilderness, God is with his people, giving them a cloud by day and a fire by night to be with them. 
the, the term we actually get is that this is his glory, his Shekinah. His presence was actually hovering over them as a people. So it's really easy in the Western context to read the Ten Commandments as rigid rules of things we are not supposed to do. I can't tell you how often I come to the Ten Commandments and think, these are just things that I shouldn't do. And there's part of that. But our framework could change a little bit when we think of it like this. In a Jewish wedding document, in a wedding ceremony, sorry, there was a document called the Ketbua. It was like a document that was signed by both parties. And what it was is it was a list of things that both parties were entering into and ultimately what they were committing their lives to. And this was actually a picture of what the Ten Commandments were for God and his people. God would continue, if you read in the Old Testament, go back to these commandments, to these vows that he made with Israel in these commandments. And now in a Jewish wedding ceremony, marriage vows are given under the upa, like God exchanged vows with Israel under the glory, the Shekinah at Sinai. What's crazy is that, and this may be weird to you, but as they stood there, this couple stood under the upa and signed the kepua. At the end of the ceremony, the legend goes, and after these vows were made, the bride party would actually escort the couple under the upa to the bride room. And you're like, that's just way out. That will never happen for me. That's okay, right? But it's here actually that you get a picture that the couple would become a cod. They would go to the bride room and they would become one flesh and they would consummate themselves under the upa as a sign of being consummated under the presence of God. Now listen, I'm not saying that we should all of a sudden have bed sheets with sticks on it at our weddings. That's not what I'm lobbying for. I just want to remind us as we get the ball rolling here that sex is spiritual. It is. And I am saying right here, and I think we need to, de- we'll get into this more over the next coming weeks, that sex is more than physical. You know, I hear this a lot, and you maybe hear this in culture too. It's just, it's just physical, right? This is kind of the narrative of our, of our culture right now. It's just consenting adults who kind of come together, and you can do whatever you want with whoever you want. This is the common theme and the, and the narrative in our culture. You know what, though? I've been around this thing for a while, around the church, uh, leading and ministering to people. I have n- never heard anyone say this after their spouse or their partner has cheated on them. You know, it's just physical. I've never heard I, anybody say, oh, it's just physical after there's brokenness and things like that that happen. You know, I thought it was just physical. No, no, sex is not just physical. Sex is powerful. It's spiritual. It's good. And it's God's idea. And I just hope as we take away from this, wherever we're coming from, we're coming from all sorts of different places, whether you're in college, you're single, there's many married couples, maybe you've gone through divorce, maybe you've gone through things in your life, brokenness in this area, I totally get it. But I just want us to see that the Song of Songs is here for a reason, and that no matter where we're at in our lives, love is a transcendent gift given to us by the creator of all things. That the king, have, king of kings has given us the song of songs. And all I want through all of this as we talk about sex and intimacy, as we talk about love, as we talk about life together, is that we would just consider why this is here and actually what it could say to us 
a couple of thousand years later. That God is good and he's designed this for good for us. You with me, brothers and sisters? No matter where you're at on this journey of life, no matter where you're coming to this, I just felt and we just felt over these days that it's important that the church actually reclaims this. In a culture that says sex is everything and typically we're a church culture over the last couple thousand years that says, well, sex is really nothing. Could we redeem what God is actually saying to us through this? I think we can.